Thank you for tuning in to Avant Life's weekly podcast. We hope this message inspires you, stirs your faith, and leaves you blessed. We've got a great Sunday ahead of us. We're continuing our Upside Down Kingdom series, this is part nine. Um, and then uh, we're going to do a little bit of a shorter sermon today, so 40 minutes. And then um, <laughs> we're going to discuss and talk and, and, and get excited about the vision for our global mission work. And uh, that's going to be exciting. I'm looking forward to, to sharing that with you. And um, so we'll be talking about one side of our global missions this week. And then the next week, we're going to be discussing our other, um, our other partnership that we are doing with our global missions. So... We're not going in order of, um, of points that Jesus spoke on when it came to his Sermon on the Mount. Um, today we're going to talk about something that has a synergy to the concept of missions when it comes to our heart. And I say that because missions requires us to give. And we're going to discuss that later in relation to the practicalities of giving into missions. But before we do that, I thought it'd be really cool to talk about uh, this one area that Jesus, and I think it's amazing that he focuses in on, uh, and it's the concept of giving to the needy. Um, and we live in a world where that idea of needy can take on many forms, many illustrations. Um, and our God doesn't define it simply as I don't have a roof over my head. You could be spiritually needy. You could be needy of, of employment or you might be needy of healing right now, whatever it is. Um, he then empowers us through his resurrection to be his answer as he lives in and through us. So let's read this. It's Matthew 6, 1 to 4. It says this. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret." then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. What your father sees, what's been done in secret, will reward you. You know, there's a lot of teaching in the Old Testament in relation to compassion to the poor. And the Greek word for, you know, to give to the needy, or almsgiving if, if you've got an older translation, literally means a deed of mercy. And then when you look at that through what Jesus, uh, you know, uh, illustrates in him coming, we, we know because of Jesus in the fullest that we serve a God that is merciful. The Old Testament echoes this. It foreshadows this merciful nature of our God even to the, to the ungrateful and the selfish, even to them. How good is our God, those selfish people in our life, those ungrateful people, God showed mercy to them as well. Bazell's like, why are you looking at me? I know what you said, Bazell. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Bazell's lovely. What a, yeah. So if our God can show mercy and be merciful even to the ungrateful and the unkind and the selfish, then we as his sons and daughters have been implored to do the same thing. 
See, he obviously expects us, his disciples, to be generous givers. I mean, generous givers in all contexts and applications of the word generous. Jesus multiple times condemns the, self, the selfish stinginess of so many people around him as he ministers. Stinginess, what a word. It just sounds ugly too, doesn't it? Stingy. Are you stingy? Turn to the person next to you, maybe write it in the chat. Are you stingy? Are you a stingy person? It's, it's also, it's, I think stinginess and stinkiness are related. Someone who's stingy has a stench about them. It's true. Maybe you've been stingy at some point. I know I have been. Maybe not with my money, but definitely with my time. Right? And well, definitely with my positive attitude that Jesus resurrected, I've been stingy. Right, And so I'm not just talking about generous in a financial sense, but we've all had those moments in our life or we've all had someone in our life be stingy and there's a stench about it that Jesus doesn't like and he doesn't want his followers carrying. He wants us to have like, he wants an antiperspirant on, right? which is a revelation of his grace through his love for us so that others would freely receive that gift as well. That's what he's looking for. We see that when he preaches on generosity, generosity in itself is not enough. He's concerned with, and has been right across his his Sermon on the Mount, with the motivation, with the hidden thoughts in our hearts. And he does not stray from that path. See, he spoke about this when it came to hatred. He speaks about this when it comes to the issue of lust. He said, hey, if if you thought bad, you had hatred in your heart towards someone, you killed them, you murdered them. Not in real life, just in your heart. And then if you've lusted towards somebody, you had a, you had a, you know, a tempt, a desire, you've, you've fantasized about something in, a, in, a, in an adulterous manner or in a fornicative manner. He said you've done it in your heart. So you've committed the sin. So he, he takes that same strain of heart condition and he applies it to generosity. So simply being generous is not enough. And so when we read what he says here in chapter 6, 1 to 4, He's given us three things. Three questions we must answer about ourselves this morning. And it all revolves around, it's not the question about what the hand is doing. You know, writing out your credit card details or handing over a check. That's not what he's concerned about. He's concerned about what is the heart thinking while the hand is doing. And so we're going to talk about three possibilities that Jesus allows us to see simply by talking how we meant to give to the needy. Now, don't get me wrong. We're not going to stray from the fact that we've got to give to the needy, but let's deal with the symptoms that really cause our giving, our generosity to either be corrupt or worthless in the sight of God. Because he says back here, if you do it, for certain reasons, then there's no reward. So the first thing we see here, and this is what you need to ask yourself, the first possibility in Jesus' illustration is giving, being generous for the praise of man. 
See, the ravenous hunger for praise was the sin that constantly beset the Pharisees. We see it all through the New Testament every time. They're wanting to have the affirmation. They want to be, they want to be celebrated by men. Jesus actually says, you receive glory from one another, yet you do not seek the glory that comes from the only, from the only God. You seek what man can give you, and you reject and you neglect what you should be looking for, which can only come from God. John writes that they loved the praise of men more than they loved the praise of God. So insatiable was their appetite for human celebration that it quite spoilt their giving. It spoilt their giving. This morning, do you give to be praised by man? Because if you do, there's hope for you in Jesus. But more importantly, it's wasteful giving. It's wasteful because your gift, your generosity is spoiled. You, you've all been in this situation before where somebody... Somebody, you know, you just, I remember in, uh, when I was younger, right, at school, you go sit down at lunchtime, someone would open up their lunchbox, they'd take a bite out of something, and by the expression on their face, you knew what they just ate wasn't good. It was, there was something wrong with what mum made that day. And then they ask you, as if they're being generous, do you want my lunch? Right? And, and what they're trying to do is look generous, but what they're giving to you is spoiled. You don't want, like you sit at a restaurant, someone eats something that's disgusting. You know the food is like, I can't hide when I don't like what I'm eating. Right? But we take things in our life that are spoiled and we try to sell them as generosity. Oh, I don't know if I do that. Ladies, how many times have you bought clothes that didn't fit you properly because you did it through an online thing like Wayfair or Wish You or whatever, uh, you know, and it doesn't fit you, but you're just fab? <laughs> doesn't fit you, and if it did, you'd keep it because it doesn't. You'd give it away, but you give it in a manner that is so generously reflective of how good a person you are for giving something that you made a mistake in, but you won't tell them, hey, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah? Oh, guys, we give away old tech because we're too lazy to sell it. But we tell them, we could have sold this, but I'm giving it to you. I'm like, whatever. You're just too lazy to sell it. You don't want some weirdo coming to your house to pick up your iPhone 6. We do this all the time. See, Jesus ridicules the way they turn it into this public performance, you know, and he paints this picture of this pompous Pharisee making his way to the money box in the temple or the synagogue or to take a gift to the poor. And he, and he talks about it like as trumpeters go before his march of generosity, this fanfare as he walks and he's attracting a crowd. See, it's perfectly obvious that Jesus is painting their intent to be something that is looking, it's hunting. I love that thought. They're hunting for applause. 
They're hunting for it. They're not simply stumbling upon it. They're setting traps, right? They're deceiving people like a hunter would make noise to deceive the animal to think it is somewhere it wants to be where it shouldn't. Now, whether if they did, the Pharisees did this literally or whether Jesus was just painting a really amusing character of, a caricature of them, it doesn't really matter because what he's trying to say is, is that at the end of the day, this is what's taking place. This is the parade that is taking place in their heart. Right? I know for a fact that every person here, every person watching, would have at some point in their life thought about being generous, but thought more about how they were going to express their generosity than the gift themselves. Right? I've done it. Now, in certain contexts, how you express your generosity is often more important than the gift, right? But in the affections and the hunting affections for your peers to think you're a person that maybe you're not, then it's unhealthy. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, to stand with a penny in one hand and a trumpet in the other is the posture of hypocrisy. See, hypocrisy is the word which Jesus uses to characterize this display. He uses the classical Greek word, hypocritus. It's like a creature. And that word was actually used first to describe orators and then actors. Isn't that interesting? That, that figuratively, when the word is applied to somebody who treats the world as a stage, then we look at it and go, well, they're just playing their part. They're an actor. Like you take an actor, you take an orator and you put them on a stage. In that context, yeah, they're doing their job. There's no offense there because they're make-believing. They're playing their part in a bigger make-believe. But if you take the word hypocrite and you apply it to a religious person, someone of faith, all of a sudden they're playing something very wrong because the context in which they're playing it in is no longer make-believe. It's real. So when we look at our generosity... And we look at the words Jesus uses here, that concept of hypocrite, an actor. An actor's job in the right context is to portray. An actor's job in the wrong context is to deceive. What mask are you wearing this morning? See, to, to act, and we've got so many good actors in our church, and I mean like proper actors on the stage. I'm not looking at the camera and going, I know you're acting. <laughs> Maybe you are. But I mean like the actual people that act like in our plays and in our productions and, and all that type. We've got amazing actors. But they would tell you to act, you have to have the ability to set aside your true identity and take on a false one. I sort of like that dynamic when we think about Jesus describing people who give generously for praise of man because it tells us that you have a true identity, which means what you put down to pick up a false one, you can pick back up, right? You can pick back up. 
which means there's hope in the word hypocrite because a hypocrite is someone who's not behaving like themselves. They're selling something that's false, but tells me that there's still truth. There's truth in you this morning. Maybe you're not living it out. Maybe you're not actually acknowledging it. Maybe you're not feeding it. But at some point, Jesus, when you allow him in there, he will execute the falsehood in your life. He'll begin to crucify the fallacies and he'll begin to resurrect your true identity. And he wants to do that in your generosity. He says at the end that, Those people who are hypocrites, who look for the praise of man in their giving, they have their reward. And and translated through the Greek literally is that apeko, which means a full transaction complete. Receive a sum in full and give a receipt for it. That's what he means. It means there is no actual reward to their generosity outside a mere financial and optical transaction. Nothing else. Nothing in the heart, nothing in the eternal. You get what you get. And you think it's good, but nothing you've done right now you can take to where you're going. And that's what he's saying. If you give for the praise of man, your transaction in full ends in that moment. And you're going to have to do it again and again and again because it doesn't offer life. It offers death, which means you're going to feed something that is insatiable, that's going to ask more than you can give. And your giving, which you thought was generous for the praise of man, is now toxic and it's giving out of a place where you're going to run out one day. The second thing he talks about, I'm going to shoot through this quickly, is self-adoration. I love this one. See, now have, having to, you know, told his, his followers that to give to the needy in a, a sort of this ostentatious manner, like the Pharisees, wasn't something he wanted us to do in our, our discipleship of him, like following him. He then begins to express how we should do it, and he uses another negative. He says this in verse 3, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. See, the right hand in most of the ancient world, and it's true to today, is the the normal active hand. When you meet somebody, you naturally assume they're right-handed, and when they're left-handed, you're like, no, I don't. But you do, because when you see them writing left-handed, you say, everyone says the same thing. Oh, you're left-handed. It's just, you know what I mean? So don't be like, no, we've got hand equality at the moment. doesn't matter. I don't judge. Whatever. Is your ambidextrous? Cool. That's next level. When someone's like, I can do both hands, you're like, whoa, you can write with both hands. Like it's mind blowing for us because right hand is the normal way. We just assume it. Now I get that it's not like, oh, well, I'm a, I'm a good person for not assuming. I'm not a bad person for assuming if you're right handed or not. And Jesus says here, he uses normal activity. He goes, hey, don't let your, your left hand know what your right hand is doing. See, he's assuming when we give when the majority of people give, they give using their stronger dominant hand. So you're giving with your right hand. You're putting the money into the, the offering with your right hand. I know we do it digitally now. You're swiping on your screen with your right hand. Then he adds, don't let the left hand know. Don't let it, don't let it watch. It's really not difficult to grasp the meaning here. Uh, Not only are we um, not to tell other people about our, you know, what we're giving in that sense. 
we're not even meant to tell ourselves. Now, I know you're sitting there going, well, that doesn't make sense because I've got to make a decision at some point to give. What he's saying is don't be self-conscious internally about your giving. Because self-consciousness readily deteriorates into self-righteousness. And nothing sadder than giving a self-righteous offering to God. Because then you're giving out of your righteousness, which we know is nothing but hell, filthy rag. Turn to someone and say, you filthy rag. You dirty rag, you. See, so subtle is the sinfulness of the heart that it is possible for us to deliberate, sorry, to, to deliberately take steps to keep our giving secret from men while simultaneously dwelling on it in our own minds in a spirit of self-congratulation. <laughs> You've been there, right? <laughs> you, no, well, yeah. Yeah, where you like pat yourself on the back because you did what you were meant to do, like. Oh, you breathed today? Good job. Pat yourself on the back. What a legend. Oh, you gave to God what was already his. Wow, you're not a thief. Pat yourself on the back. Everyone pat yourself on the back. You're not a kleptomaniac. <laughs> right? This is what Jesus is saying is that, hey, at the end of the day, you're going you're gonna to start congratulating yourself in a self-righteous manner. You're going to start to give so that you can feed the, own, the thought of goodness in your mind. Feed the image of created of yourself. I love this thought because at the end of the day, my God is so in love with us that he won't even accept that. He won't even accept us selling our love for him. He won't let us pretend for our sake. He's like, hey, you, you might now do it in secret and let everyone know. Make, and make sure it looks like to everyone else that they're not going to see what you're really giving. So you've covered the secrecy part. But that's still not good enough because in your heart, you're still feeding something unhealthy. See, this, this concept that we have the possibility in our hearts and minds to turn an act of mercy like giving to the needy into an act of vanity within the heart, in the mind. Like my daughters like to put makeup on. This is what I find interesting about daughters, or maybe it's women in general, but I'm just going off the context I know, is especially my, my you know, both of them, um, they, put, they put on makeup for themselves. And then my youngest one, Eden, will stand in the mirror and be like, look at the mirror, look away, and then figure out how she wants to look with the makeup on and be like. <laughs> and she'll do this. When she cries, she cr like she'll come into our room crying. And if there's a mirror in our room, which there is, she'll continue to cry, continue to tell us what's wrong while not looking at us, not changing where her head is, it's still facing us. She's crying, but she's looking in the mirror. Doesn't she, babe? 
Sometimes she'll come into the lounge room and just cry in the mirror, which I'm not too upset about because I'm not a fan of ugly crying faces. So if she's trying to better that, you know, kudos to her. Because as a pastoral carer, I tell you what, sometimes, you know, you cry and you're like, wow. I'm distracted. You're like, you're a bad person, Pastor Ben. Hey, if you're joining us for the first time, it doesn't take you long to realize that. I just say it how it is. Like I do it with my own kids. They come and they're like, their face is distorted. I'm like, how did you even distort your face like that? Crying. But we do it, and this is essentially it. Like, do we, do we, are we generous, but inside we're really, we're, we're trying to feed a vanity that we have inside of us. There's a mirror here that Jesus is saying you're looking into, and how are you feeding it? And you do it in your grieving as well. Like, you know those people that walk around, they're upset, something's gone wrong in their life, but they need everyone else to know about it, right? Even if it's actually not a big deal. They need everyone else to know about it. They need everyone to know that they're grieving because they feed something on the inside. I love the thoughts here because we can apply it to so many things in our life. But at the end of the day, we know that a self-centeredness, if our giving comes from self-centeredness, that part of you is a part of your old self. Jesus is dealing with that or dealt with it. You're now a new creation in Christ Jesus. You're no longer calculating your generosity. Your generosity is uncalculated in him. Think about it. I'm not saying you're not sure what you're putting in in your generous tithe or whatever. I'm saying why you're giving it is no longer calculated. And we're going to get to why this is. Because either you're giving it for the approval of man or you're giving it because you're sustaining a vanity. You're not letting anyone else see. But the Bible says that God knows, the Father knows what's given in secret. He sees it. And then there's this last thought. Is that we give, and honestly, this is our goal. And this is what Jesus is leading us to, is that we give out of a divine approval. Divine approval. See, what we should be seeking when we're giving to the needy is not the praise of man, nor it is the ground for self-celebration, but rather the approval of God. The approval of God. Now, this implies... In our Lord's reference to the right and left hands, by this expression, we know he means that we ought to be satisfied with having God for our only witness, not even ourself as our witness of giving. Not even our own vain like celebration should bear witness to our giving, but God himself should bear witness. See, although we can keep our giving secret from others and to an extent from ourselves, we can never keep it secret from God. No secrets are hidden from Him. That's why He says, so your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, some people really get upset with this verse because in, in some other translations, it says that he would, he would openly reward you. And they say, well, I neither want nor expect a reward of any kind from anybody. They're like, they have this this purest mentality for generosity. And they're saying, hey, like even God's reward, his promise of reward is inherently inconsistent with the heart of generosity because now you're giving it because God sees? Then there's not, there's not a pure nature to your generosity. You're not giving for the sake of just giving. 
See, how can he, and obviously this is from people that are challenging the mindset of a Christian and challenging the principles of God, but they're essentially saying, how can we, or how can he, our God, forbade us, like forbid us from the desire of praises from others or from ourselves, then command us to seek him? Isn't that in itself merely an exchange of one vanity for another? I know you're probably sitting there, and if you grew up in the church, this never crossed your mind. But if you didn't grow up in the church, this definitely would have crossed your mind. So some Christians are like, I never thought about that. Yet. Good. But those of you who had this thought, let me answer it for you. That thought of should we not rather just give purely for the sake of giving, to seek praise from any quarter, be it man, self, or God, seems to be that violating act of giving. Let's answer that right now. First, the reason why such an argument is mistaken has to do with the nature of rewards. When, see, when, when people say the idea of rewards is taste, distasteful to them, it's because the picture that they have in their mind is like a prize giving at a school or a fair with like a trophy, like gleaming there, platformed on the table and everyone's clapping. Ever won a trophy before? It's a good feeling. One time I, um, I was like a, I got, anyway, I had to do debating, went to these tournaments and I won this one tournament and I went up there and they had this gleaming, like it was huge, just taller than me, like award, uh, like trophy, but they also had like an envelope and I found out in the envelope was money, I'd won money, no one told me that in this, this contest I'd win money, right, and so I was heavily distracted when I was meant to be picking up this trophy that was bigger than me, I was counting my money in the envelope, I'm like, boom! But the trophy was there. Maybe you're the trophy person. I'm the money person. The trophy was there. And, I, and, and we, we read that and we have this context of reward is something like that. Like conjuring up this kind of scene, and I've said this before, has to do with some of the translations. But even when you read this, there's this, this thought that the reward would be given openly, like presented and, and it's, it's an incorrect, there's a nuance here. See, the contrast is not between a secret gift and a public reward, but between the men and, and women who neither see it, nor the reward, the gift, and the God who does both. I sit here sometimes and think when we give, do we give because we think God's going to give something we want? And essentially this is what the higher critic is having an issue with what Jesus is saying here. And I think a part of that finds power and finds traction in the way we preach generosity sometimes or the way we allow it to be perceived sometimes and is that we give to God so that we would be blessed in return financially. And that might be the case in some situations, but it's not what should be driving the motivation of your heart. C.S. Lewis wrote in his essay titled The Way to Glory, we must not be troubled by unbelievers when they say that this promise of reward makes the Christian life a mercenary affair. I love how he uses the word mercenary here. See, There are different kinds of rewards. 
There is the reward which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it and is quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those things. Money is not the natural reward of love. Ever thought about that? Money is not the natural reward of love. Do you know where the term mercenary comes from? A mercenary originally is a man who marries a woman for the sake of her money. Now, we have mercenaries that fight on behalf of other people, but why do they fight? For money. They don't fight because they're a patriot. They don't fight because they have a deep belief in whatever they're fighting for. They're fighting for the love of money. Do you give out of the love of money? Is your Christian warfare, spiritual warfare, that love from Christ, are you... Are you trying to see the reward in money? Because love, or money should I say, is not the natural reward for love. See, marriage is the proper reward for real love. See, he's not a mercenary for desiring marriage. See, when you love somebody in that context, the reward is marriage. That's the reward. Think about the, the connection here. See, it's like giving an academic schoolboy or child a silver cup. That's not very suitable reward for their achievement. A scholarship is the suitable reward for their achievement. And I know what you're thinking. I'm like, well, it's still a reward. No. See, a healthy reward like God is talking about is consummated in the reward by the act in the first place. I study hard. I get a scholarship to what? Study some more. I love my wife. My reward is I get to marry her so I can love her better, more intimately. You see, this is the reward tension of our God, is that he's not saying, oh, okay, because you loved well, I'm going to give you money. It's not what he's trying to say here. So what then is the reward in which the Heavenly Father gives to the secret giver with a pure intention? It's neither public, nor is it something of, of material reward in the future. Using the logic we've just discussed, it's simply this. The only reward which genuine love wants when making a gift to someone in need is namely to see the need relieved. So when through our gifts the hungry are fed and the naked are clothed and the sick are healed and the oppressed are freed and the lost are saved, the love which prompted the gift is satisfied. Therefore such love, which is God's love being expressed through us, is rewarded. Oh, no. Oh, what? I don't feel that at all. If that's you, then you're giving out of the wrong heart. If my child needs a jacket and out of my love I get him a jacket, am I, is my love now rewarded by him being clothed or him being rewarded by him now doing the dishes for me? No. 
as a father, I give that jacket and my love is rewarded because my son, who was once cold, is now warm, who was once exposed, is now protected. My love is rewarded in the fulfillment of what I was trying to meet in the first place. As believers, when we give, when we look at the needy, when we tithe, when we go, it's for the extension of his kingdom, our love is rewarded by the need being relieved. You are a part of the salvation process. This generosity doesn't just apply to money. It applies to your time. It applies to your attitude. It applies to your words. It applies to how you represent Jesus. It applies to how you serve his kingdom. So all of a sudden, when you serve generously and you're expecting a brand new Ferrari and you don't get it, you should have realized it's in the serving and relieving of a need that you've been rewarded. You have been used. You are the feet that are beautiful. That's our reward. So when you get up in the morning and God goes, I want you to give your jacket that cost you $400 to the homeless man without a jacket, you're not thinking, well, what do I get in return? You're seeing the man in need. You give him the jacket. He's now warm and your love is relieved. Come on. If that doesn't get you excited for Jesus, I don't know what will. That doesn't mean we're going to have like a hard life because we've given everything away. I'm just saying, when you give, when God speaks to you, when that secret conversation takes place and you do what he's asked you to do, the reward is Christ. Oh, you're like, oh, Ben, that's so fresh. I love that. Yeah, it's amazing. So good. And then you do nothing about it. Sometimes I like do message prep. I'm like, oh, man. I don't know if we're going to have much of a church after COVID. Every time I think that, and it's a natural thing for a pastor to think, a leader to think, the Holy Spirit challenges me like, well, did you have one in the first place? If, if, you, if you ever, all you ever gave people was like cotton candy and like what they wanted to hear. Church, I want to be a generous church. I want to be generous in our tithe. I want to be generous in our offering. I want to be generous in our local and global missions. But I don't want our generosity to be birthed out of a place of what will other churches think of us. It shouldn't even be based on will the community now see that we're generous to it so it will accept Jesus. No, as a church, we should be giving because it is a part of our love. It's a part of our love, not to the community, to God. And in our love to God, the community is blessed. God is blessed by our love towards Him. Because we can go and we can serve the community with the intent for them to fall in love with us. And the Bible tells us that there's no reward. Or we can begin to be faithful in our tithe as we meet the spiritual needs of our community and the physical needs of our community and we begin to expand the kingdom we can be faithful in our offerings and our missions as we and this is what I love and we're going to start talking about this now because we're over time is that we begin to express the fulfillment of his love without boundaries or parameters or calculations or conditions we start to operate in complete unadulterated, pure obedience. And if that doesn't get you, you want an adventure in your life, be purely obedient. Oh man, Pastor Ben, my life's so boring. I don't fulfill, feel any form of fulfillment. I said, it's because you try to keep writing the narrative and the way you write is boring. 
The way you write has no adventure to it. The way you write has no imagination to it because all you're writing is how you're going to get what you want and you just the easiest way there is what you're going to write. But God's like, hey, I want your life to be exciting. I want it to be dynamic. I want it to be vibrant. I want it to have depth and height and width and sustenance. And the only way you can do that is if you let me write the story because I have an imagination that will blow your mind. I have an authorship that brings authority in your life that you could never achieve in your own strength. I want you to live the most powerful, most exciting, the most vibrant, diverse life, but you got to be purely obedient to it because other, every other way is boring. People ask all the time, I took so much faith to come to Canada. I said, no, I just won't accept a boring life. Give me pain and excitement over numb and bored any day. Our generosity should bring excitement because it should bring obedience. It should challenge our minds. It should transform our hearts. And we should start, you know, as a church, I want to be a church that overwhelms people with just, uh, just ridiculous generosity. You're one of three things this morning. You're a generous person because you want the clap on the back. You're a generous person because you're stuck looking in the mirror. Or you're a generous person who understands the revelation of love in our God, in our Savior Jesus Christ. And you give to be a part of the relief, the mission, the gospel. Without hesitation, you can't be one and a bit of the other. This is oil and water here, people. Mission update time. Part of our vision uh, that God has given us is to partner with two global uh, missions. Um, and we've said this from the very start as a church, when we, when we launched back in 2018, everything we do right now, and we, we believe we're called as a church, is to raise leaders, is to disciple people, and is to plant churches. So everything we do is through the lens of multiplication of the kingdom. I love global missions. It's one of those things. One, it's super helpful for the extension of God's kingdom in a practical, in a practical sense. But on a whole other dynamic is, is, is that idea that our, our bride that we're a part of, God's bride, does not have boundaries. That a bunch of random people on the side of a mountain in North Vancouver can help establish a kingdom stronghold in a nation that we might never set foot in. That is the mindset and the heart condition of his bride. And that's why global missions is so important because it's the church constantly saying, we, we are one. We are a part of this. Doesn't matter your creed, doesn't matter your color, doesn't matter what language you speak, what passport you hold, all of that is irrelevant in relation to our faith. This is what I love. And if you haven't traveled the world heaps and you're like, oh, I'm not exactly, your context might be messed up. I've traveled the world so much and I've met Christians from all over the world. And what I love is that we use the term brother and sister. Maybe we don't use it as much anymore, but back in the day, we're like, oh, you brother, sister in Christ, right? Brother and sister. Until you travel the world and you go to another nation, you meet someone else that you've never met before, but they've met Jesus and you've met Jesus. So, you are you friends with I love Jesus. And you have that moment with someone who can barely speak the language you speak and you can barely speak the language they speak, but you speak the same language and you say at their house, 
and you eat their food, which they were generous to give you under the shelter of their house that they were generous to provide for you, and you realise the only reason this is happening is because the church is a global church founded on the power of the local church, believing in something bigger than itself, then all of a sudden when we talk about global missions, you realise this is not just a nice thing, but a necessary thing, not just because we need to see uh, the faith of our, uh, you know, what we have partnered with someone else's faith, the gospel expanded. It's to show the world an outward expression of the love of God that has no respect for boundary, has no respect for the walls that humans can put up that are divisive. So I can do all things. I can transcend all nations, all languages, all skin colours, I can even go to Langley. What I love is that people join Avant Life who haven't been here from the start and realize they're like, why does Pastor Ben not like Langley? <laughs> do, we, do, I, do you remember why I don't? I don't even remember, Josh. I can't remember. We just had to pick a place, and I was sick of everyone picking on Surrey. So Pastor Emma and I and the, and the board here at Avant Life, we've been praying for a long time. Hey, what are our global missions? And last year, he really began to speak to us as a leadership team about two nations in particular that we had to partner with. Now, it's through the lens, and I've said this before, of raising leaders, planting churches. Now, don't get me wrong. I do believe in helping the immediate need of those that are poor and need, need support. But I think we best do that by raising up the local church, not sending a group of people to take photos with brown kids. Do you want that? Levi's here. I can dress him up in lots of different costumes. Our mission is to partner with the work God is already doing on the ground. He doesn't need Australian Canadian brown pastor Ben to be there. He needs Avant Life to empower whoever he's called to be there, to partner with that, to invest in that, to train in that, to believe in that, to pray in that, to invest in that in all aspects of our generosity. And so that in mind, today I'm going to talk about our first global partner in missions. And I love this because... If you're, if you're a history buff like me and you love Jesus and you've done enough study on the church, uh, this nation that we really feel called to as a church was a part of the epicenter of the spread and birth of Christianity. But right now, it's in great need of the gospel again. After 2,000 years, it's in great need of the gospel again. And we're talking about the nation of Italy. I know we all sit here and like, oh, I thought you were going to pick out like the Congo. That's in great need too. And God's called a church to partner with that. For us, when we talk with the great leaders of our partner organization, El Aviva, formerly known as NLI Canada, when we talk to Pastor Thomas and Pastor George, you begin to realize that the spiritual atmosphere of Italy has reached rock bottom. That if there is a nation that is spiritually malnourished right now, 
deprived of the health of the gospel, then Italy is one of those nations. Corruption, government debt, reduced social services. Italy is the third largest economy in Europe. It has 60 million people. 50 million of them identify as Christian. Less than 700,000 of them are evangelical. It's estimated that there's over 8,200 cities and towns in the nation of Italy without an evangelical church, without a Pentecostal spirit-filled expression. The first or one of the first nations the move of the Spirit invaded and transformed was the nation of Italy. And after 2,000 years of human control, it is dry. But I love my God. He's a God that loves to resurrect over and over again. And we really believe here as a church that Avant Life has been called to partner with that resurrection process. And I'm, I mean like, you might, oh, we're just going to be a drop in the ocean. Then let us be a drop. It's not my ocean, it's his anyway. If we're one drop, then he's filled the rest of the ocean with a lot of other people's drops. So that's fine. Drip, drip, drop. Let's just get it done. I love the heart of Pastor Thomas, who's the director of NLI Canada. I love the heart of Pastor George, who is the strategic initiative director for NLI. You talk to these guys, you see their love for Italy and it will just inspire you. And we're going to have content coming out and when we can meet in person, they're going to come here and they're going to share and they're going to invest more in what we're doing. But we, we're partnering with them because we believe that in their desire and in their mission to raise leaders and to plant churches that are spirit-filled, we're going to see the nation of Italy overwhelmed with the Holy Spirit. They run two programs in particular. One, a church planning program that takes leaders that have been raised in their leadership development program and begins to resource them with the ability to plant a church. Avant Life Church only exists today because thousands of people that we will or you will never meet decided to be generous, not in a calculated way, but an obedient way so that you would have a church to call home. That's the truth. That those of you that have met Jesus for the first time since that took place, that you would have an eternal home to go to. Why? Because someone that you'll never see their face, but you inherited their heart. These people in Italy, all 60 million of them, will probably never see your face. But man, they can feel your heart being transformed by Christ. As a church, we partner together and we begin to invest in their leadership development program. I mean, we begin to create space, make room for them to be trained into those warriors God wants them to be. As we partner and invest into their church planning, I mean, straight up, just give money so that they can afford chairs, so they can hire a building, so that they can have instruments and sound equipment. I mean, just the real practical stuff. Why? Because I know Every time we partner with a local church that's being uh, launched, planted, and birthed, we are affecting hundreds, if not thousands, of people in that immediate community for Jesus. And the cool thing is, when you get to heaven, 
this will all be revealed. What you don't see today on earth will be revealed in the goodness of God in heaven. There will be people in heaven who are going to say, hey, because you were part of something that you couldn't see, because you were faithful and you were generous in your investment, I'm, I'm, I'm here today with you. And it's all going to be revealed. God's goodness in us, through us here on this side of eternity, will be revealed on the other side of eternity, not in a sense of like, oh, I got here because you weren't on it, in a sense of celebration, like a big heavenly party. Do you think we're just going to party for no reason in heaven? No, we're going to party for the goodness of God that's going to be reflected in eternity that took place here on earth. At the end of next week, when we talk about our other mission initiative, we're going to discuss how, as a church, we want us to respond individually to the concept of missions in our giving. I'm not going to do it today. What I'm going to ask you to do is begin to focus your heart on the fact that God has called us all to express our love for Him in global missions. The early church sent money to the forefronts of the church being spread. They, they resourced it. They equipped it. And believe it or not, when the first place had given all they had and they found hard times, the places that received initially were in health, gave back so that what was the beginning could be sustained. With that in mind, as we go back into worship, as we give God glory, as we ask God, would you continue to transform us as we think about missions? The nation of Italy thousands of years ago paid the highest price for the spread of Christianity. Think about that. Christians right across the Roman Empire were brought to that nation from within that nation and were executed for their faith in Christ. And in their faithfulness and their great hope of resurrection, we stand here thousands of years later in the privilege of the North Vancouver landscape with the opportunity to give back, which was given to us thousands of years ago. That doesn't just get your blood like pumping. I don't know what will. Outside of yourself being filled with the Holy Spirit, heart being resurrected, your sight being restored and you having the confidence to do what you are called to do in the name of Jesus. Church, you ready to worship? Let's worship. We hope you enjoyed this message. We would love you to subscribe to our weekly podcast. Other ways you can connect with Avant Life is through YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Or check out our website at avantlifechurch.com.